It is so much harder to break you guys up than it is the early service, which means you obviously love each other more and love Jesus more. I actually told them that they were holier because they, uh, they broke up quickly, so I'm just, I'm just playing, playing both sides of it. Um, but welcome, we're glad you're here. Uh, this, uh, this moment is titled uh, uh, A Mission Moment, and I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful that Redeemer sees it that way, that the Missions Committee sees it that way, because when we hear mission, we tend to think, um, you know, out there, across into other nation states, but this is a mission to Oregon, and this is my official public announcement that I've accepted a call to pastor a church in Eugene, Oregon. So if you did not know that, um, it's, it's been out there in various avenues, but this is the official announcement. Um, we will be, we are in the throes of packing currently and we'll be leaving on December 13th to go out there uh, and to pastor a, an existing congregation uh, the reason this is a, a mission moment is because, one, because of Eugene, Oregon. If you don't, if you're not familiar with Eugene, Oregon, Gallup poll uh, every year does a, um, does a, does research on religion in America. And in their most recent one, Eugene is listed as, it came in as number seven, least religious city in the United States. Um, but if you actually look at the internal numbers of, uh, that they've gathered, what you find is that it's actually the least Christian of the cities. Uh, it is, so if you think about anyone who would identify with Christ everywhere from on one end, you know, the Mormon to Jehovah's Witness, Roman Catholic, Protestant, anyone who would identify with Christ, Eugene is the least number per capita um, for the cities in the U.S. So it is a very different place, obviously, than Waco. Um, and um, and, and the, that's where the Lord is calling us. And he's calling us to a church that is uh, what the Presbytery is calling us a revitalization work. So we are actually raising support to go out there. Um, and so we are asking you as a church to go with us. Uh, to uh, be a part of that, that work, to be a part of that call, to pray for us. Uh, we assure you that you are going with us in our hearts. Uh, this church um, is uh, my church. It's our home church. It's, um, it has shaped uh, who I am as a person, who I am in ministry, uh, who I want to be in ways that I, I could, I, I can't even calculate. Um, I can't articulate. Um, and for that, I'm, I'm deeply grateful. Uh, in some ways, this church rescued us. And so we're, we're, we're very grateful for Redeemer. And we're grateful to be going out with Redeemer behind us. So, we invite you to come along. We would, we really do need support. Uh, a lot, some of that support will go to just structural stuff, but uh, some of it will go to church plant type stuff. It's not a church plant, but to, it's the church is running on a, a under budget. It, I mean, they they can't 
they can't do much in terms of outreach to the city. And so um, if that's something that interests you, please talk to me about it. I'll be sending out emails and things like that. We, um, we also want to thank you for your love for us in our time here, um, for our students who mostly sit over here but don't always only sit over there. Um, we thank you for your love for RUF and for Baylor and the campus. Um, I'll tell you one story about Eugene just so you get a feel for it. Just a couple weeks ago, Heather was um, Heather visited and she wanted to visit the junior high where Jonathan will be finishing eighth grade, so his last semester of eighth grade. And so she met, wanted to meet with the principal. And the principal is a very openly, publicly gay woman. Um, and it's actually influenced the way she runs her school so much that outside the, the door of every classroom is kind of a statement of tolerance, especially t- toward people of various sexual orientations, some of which Heather had never even heard of. Um, <laughs> thanks for laughing at that. <laughs> um, and... Uh, and so she's, she meets with the, the, she's meeting with the principal, you know, sitting in a chair. And the whole time she's meeting and talking with the principal, the principal is not sitting at a desk chair because she doesn't have one. She's actually sitting on a exercise ball. The whole time balancing herself with her hands, sitting on the balance ball. If you've seen Portlandia, nod your head. They, they've kind of nailed this, right? This is the kind of stuff they, um, they, they talk about. And, and the conversation's going just, going well, it's going fine, and up until the lady asks, so what brings you to Eugene? <laughs> and at that point, she almost falls off the exercise ball. She's like this and says, finds out I'm a pastor and we're going to be at a church here. And she says, just so you know, Eugene's not like Texas. <laughs> and Heather's like, as if the exercise ball hadn't given that away already. <laughs> We already, we already had figured that, right? Not many people go to church. Um, and actually, th- that, that actually excites me. Um, we're, we're, we are, uh, it's part of the reason we want to go. That, that very thing right there. And we want to love that place. We want to love those people. We want to love her, his principle. And um, we want to serve and minister the gospel there. Um, but to do so well, we will need the, your prayers along the way. So we ask for that. Uh, we thank you um, for countless things. All right, let's pray. Father, I thank you that you love us, uh, that you, um, thank you that you, you have called us to your mission that you did not create a mission for your church, but you have a church for your mission, that you are a God who's on a mission, that everything about the scriptures, everything about the Bible, everything about the story is a story about a God who is after people who are hurting and lost, who are broken, who are confused, who are running. Lord, we thank you that you found us that you pursued us in our sin and our rebellion. Lord, we thank you that the gospel teaches us that our sin is no better than any sin, that our community is no better than another community, 
that it all needs the redeeming work of your grace. So, Lord, we thank you. We thank you for Redeemer Presbyterian Church. We thank you for calling people to minister the gospel to, to burned out Christians. Certainly non-Christians in the this, in this city and in this area. Certainly people who don't know you, but uh, also people who need someone to come in and tell them that they can get off the treadmill. That the gospel of grace allows them to stop running chasing, striving to gain something that they already have. Lord, we thank you that your mission also calls us uh, to places where they're hostile to the gospel, where uh, like China, where Jeff and the Mannings were, the, the, the Hads and the Mannings just were, where uh, the, the government has actually set itself up against the gospel and the church. And Lord, that your, that your mission calls us to places like Eugene, that's not really hostile, it's just ambivalent. It just looks at it and says, yeah, that's cool for you, um, and this is what I believe, and it really doesn't matter. Lord, when we look at all three of those possibilities of places that you might call us or that you have called us, all of them are impossible apart from your work of grace apart from the power of your spirit, apart from your gospel showing up in power to redeem and to save. So Lord, we thank you for that. We ask you that you would do that here in Waco and beyond. Lord, we pray that you would do that this morning in our own hearts. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I'm going I'm to give a caveat for any of you out there who are, might be like me, who are somewhat cynical. <laughs> so when a, a pastor gets up and talks about um, su- support and, a- and asking for support, and then he turns and, and preaches a sermon like I'm about to preach, you might think I'm trying to manipulate the situation. I'm not. This was not planned. This is just the way that it works out. So if you don't like it, blame God. Thanks. This is, yeah, well, y'all can't get mad at me anyway, right? I'm, I'm leaving. Um, <laughs> um, no, it, it really is. I, 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 I thought about it, and I actually considered switching the sermon because I thought it might seem like I was really trying to do something here, and I'm not. So I hope you'll, I hope you'll take that as, as an honest truth. Um, as you can imagine, uh, our, our, our leaving for Oregon is... Uh, it has mixed emotions, right? It often, every, every, often when I tell people about this and they come and talk to me about it, they, one of their first questions are, are you excited? And I, I always feel a little guilty because I hesitate. But, and the reason I hesitate is not because I'm not excited, it's because I'm also really scared. I'm really afraid. There's a lot of things about it that make, make me scared. I, one is the story I just told. You know, we, we, we want to we go there and we want to love the community and we want to love that principal and we want to love that school and we want to be involved. And that's not what scares me. It's, it's, it's that I, I wonder, will they love my son? Will they be okay with my son and his views on these things? Will they accept where he stands? Or will he um, somehow come under fire now for what he believes is a Christian by his principle? Or others. 
And that, that scares me as a parent. Or it scares me to think about a, a church that's in a revitalization project, right? That's, um, that's, that's barely making it. Um, and a three-year window that I'm raising support, I didn't say that, three-year window, and I, I, I realize that I have no way of knowing what, what it's going to look like over those three years and whether we're going to get to where we need to get to be self-sustaining. I don't know. I'm afraid. I'm afraid that I'll get there and, um, and to be honest, that we'll just kind of limp along as a small, non-growing congregation. You know, this, I don't, that may bother you, but when, when pastors get up and tell the stories about the missionaries that went out, you know, to, to the remotest regions of the world, and they died without ever seeing a convert, and you're supposed to sit there and say, wow, that's awesome. I think, that's terrible. <laughs> How awful. Who, what pastor wants to be called to the mission field where they labor their whole life and give their life on that field and never see anyone believe in Jesus? That scares me. But more, it just scares me because I can't control it. I have no ability to uh, control the outcome. I have no ability even to uh, evaluate, honestly, if I'm you know, being honest here this morning, to evaluate whether it's a good fit for me or not as a church, a, a church and, and um, a pastor, I mean, I, I can see it, and I see things about it, and I believe it, and I'm encouraged, and I have no negative thing to say. Let me put this in your own world. If you're married or thinking about getting married, surely you understand that uh, when, you, when you're in the process of engagement and moving towards marriage or dating and moving towards marriage, there's something in, inside of you that realizes that you're taking a big step of faith because there are things about that person you don't know. There, there are things that, there's a risk that's involved. There are things that you can't control. And you're stepping into it and you realize that as much as you see, there's, there's much that you don't see. And as much as you want to control how it goes, you realize that you can't. You just can't. And so for me, uh, my fear of this turns into not good. It, it, it doesn't turn into to, um, debilitating fear. But Jeff will, Jeff will attest to this. When, when I told him I was starting to look, I said, the one thing I want is for the process to be easy. Why? Because I'm afraid of something hard. I'm afraid of something, a test that, that comes down the road that I, I, I don't know how I'll manage it or how well I'll do. Whether I'll succeed or fail. I can't control that. I can't control what the test will be. And so I just kind of throw up my hands and say, I just want it to be easy. Lord, just you know, dry, open a door that you can drive a Mack truck through, through so I don't have to risk making the wrong decision, a wrong choice. Our passage today is about what we do in a world that we cannot control the outcome. And what we do with the desire to do so, the, 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 um, the real desire to, to evaluate, calculate, and then control outcomes. That's what our passage is about. And the question is, what are we to do? 
how do we live in such a world? How do we live as Christians in such a world? How do we live in a way that um, honors God? That's Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verse 1 through 6. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Ecclesiastes 11, 1. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on the earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, whether, they, whether both alike will be good. The word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God remains forever. Please be seated. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your love and grace. We thank you that you uh, are at work even now. Lord, we pray that we, w- we would see your hand, your hand of goodness, your hand of grace, and that we might be changed. And it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. All right, so Ecclesiastes, this probably isn't surprising to you if you know anything about Ecclesiastes, that one of its messages would be that you're not in control, right? You can't control the world. It says there in verse 2, right, um, that you do not know what disaster may happen. We've all experienced in our own lives the reality of, of, the, of the world just seeming to work along a certain path and everything seeming to be trucking along, and then disaster strikes, Sometimes it's a small disaster, like um, this week when I was frantically looking for my keys and painfully late because I couldn't find them, to also this week where I get a phone call that my grandfather has been admitted to the hospital because he's having heart problems. We don't know. We don't know when disaster may strike and I, I think what, what happens is we, we tend to get in that groove and everything's trucking along and we, we grow to assume that we do know, we can calculate, we kind of get lulled into thinking that, that we're in a zone, if you will. And the scriptures here wants to warn us t- to realize that we don't know and we need to live knowing that we don't know. That we don't know what tomorrow holds. That our, our um, views of our own control, our own working in the world, the, the idea that we've got it figured out, it's a myth. It doesn't exist. He goes on to say in verse 3, if the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He's actually saying, look, there are things about the world that you can actually observe and calculate and make good estimations based upon, right? If the clouds are full of rain, it rains. We understand that. There's things that, that we can observe in the world that help us understand the world. It's not that we are flying completely blind, 
He's not saying that. He's saying that we cannot put our trust in those things. And that's why he goes on to say, if a tree falls. So he says, look, we can observe the weather, but we, really, we certainly can't control it. And I would argue we can't predict it. How many of you got a little excited that your iPhone app for the weather had a little snowflake on it for today? How many of you are betting that we have snow today? No, uh, okay, we got one high roller over here. <laughs> Nobody's betting it's going to snow today. We can't predict the weather. We know it's going to be cold and, and maybe moist. If the tree falls, he says to the south or the north, it's either way, it's any way, you can't control it. That we can't control the, the way a tree falls, whether it's on your house or not. And then he goes on to say this, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. So part of what he's saying is, look, you can't control, even though you can calculate, you can't control. And then once it's, it's fallen, you can't replant it. It's done. He's trying to get us to see the smallness of our control in, 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 in the world, the smallness of our efforts and the futility of them in some ways. We can't control the direction it falls and we can't repair Repair it once it's broken. So then I think the passage uh, points and deals with two ways that we deal with this uncertainty. Our inability to control the two things that we tend to do. Uh, the first one is to tighten your grip. To uh, calculate better. To work harder. To plan more. To stay up later. To burn the midnight oil. To work and work and work. Um, I'm not real good at this. This is not my tendency, but, but um, my personality is to want to control things. And so if you would just, you come and look at my iPhone, I could take you through, I don't know, 20 apps that are designed to help me control my world. None of which I use. <laughs> because when I start trying to use them, uh, it's, it, the world, it just spins worse. It's just, it's worse. Fortunately for me, um, the Lord has given me a wife who um, controls my world. <laughs> I meant that in the sweetest possible way, honey. <laughs> yeah, so we tighten our grip, right? We tighten our grip. Um, uh, some of this, uh, some of you this morning need to repent, if you, if you will, that because your world is out of control and you hate that and it wears on you and it causes fear, you come home and try to manage your spouse and your children. And you're a bear and you're mean and you snap. We tighten our grip. We, we strain harder because we want to control things even more. We get angry. A friend of mine tells a story about a, um, a friend of his in seminary who every time uh, a round of tests would roll around, he would send his wife and kids away so that he could study. And 
my friend said that when he was in seminary, he thought, wow, that's great. You know, I just get rid of them so that I can study better, right? So there's no distractions in my life so I can control the outcome. And then he's, as he's gotten older, he started to think about that from his wife and children's perspective, how awful that might have been. What that might have done for his relationship with his wife and children, what it might have communicated to them about what was actually more important in his life. Do you tighten your grip? Do you lock down? Look at verse 4. This is what is going on here. He who observes the wind will not sow. And he who regards the clouds will not reap. What he's saying there is the person who waits for the perfect conditions, the perfect wind conditions, before he scatters seeds because he doesn't want the wind to blow his seed out of the rose that he's planted. He wants to be efficient in his planting. And so he observes the wind and he's waiting for the perfect moment. He doesn't sow. If he lives so much um, in desire to control the outcome, if he's so afraid of making a mistake, if he's so concerned about controlling outcome, then he doesn't do anything. It becomes actually debilitating. And it's the same thing. He who regards the clouds will not reap. The one who waits and waits and waits for a clear, sunny day to bring in the harvest so that his crops are not spoiled by the rain that comes will never reap. Our attempts at control become debilitating and the very thing that we're after is lost in the process. The other faulty um, response to our lack of control is to do nothing, to give up, to, to um, say, well, if I can't control it, I, I, I won't do anything. But, I mean, that's what verse 6 is getting at, Right? Yeah, you can't control it, so in the morning, sow your seed. He's basically saying, you can't control the outcome, so when you get up in the morning, do what you know to do. Do your job. Get up, feed your family, go to work, earn your living, do what you know to do. Work at it. Don't stop, don't sit around, don't, um, don't throw up your hands and say, well, if I can't control it, if I can't control the outcome, if it's out of my hands, then I won't do anything. That will not do. This is, this is Ecclesiastes trying to teach us wisdom. It's trying to teach us to look at the world and to see the world for what it is, which is a world that has both pattern and risk. It has both, um, it, it, we're supposed to plan and risk. We see this kind of giving up. I see it, especially being a, a campus minister with college students who, you know, they, their their view of of love and marriage is love stinks. You know, that's so that's so lame. I'm too cool for thinking about that. And, and what you see is what what you see in that is is their cynicism is actually a born out of a realization that they can't control it. And a fear that they won't get what they, they want. And so they try to deny that they want it. They give up. And, and, and they're just cynical and cool about it. Our cynicism 
uh, tends to be born out of fear that we won't get what we can, what we desire, and so we we throw up our hands and and just sneer at it. And the scripture here says, "You don't control the future, so get up in the morning and sow your seed. Get up in the morning and do something." Again, in dealing with college students, this often comes up, especially this time of the year, especially this time of the year here at Baylor, because this is about the time that, that hearing back from med schools about interviews is coming through. And, and what you see happening, and what I see happening with my students is one of two things, I, I can understand this, is they, either, they typically just want to know. Either tell me I'm in or cut me loose, don't make me wait. Because they want to know, they want to control, they want to understand the future. And having something out there that they desire and long for that they can't um, control and they're having to wait on other people drives them nuts. And they really would say, I would rather them just say no than make me wait. So the scriptures tell us that it won't do to tighten your grip, but it also won't do to give up. So what's the proper response? Verse 6, I think, leads us to it. In the morning, sow your seed. So it says, look, the proper response is, is do something. Actually act. Step out and risk. Because he says, look, it's, 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 if you do this, when you do this, you don't know what, what the good that, that will come. And I think the hint here is that uh, we, we tend to fear that there won't be a good thing coming to us. But he assumes that, that the Lord's posture towards you as you step forward in the world is to bring you good. To actually do good to you. To, to give you life and purpose and meaning. To actually provide for you and protect you and to care for you. And so it calls you to, to step out. But it also calls you to step out and give away, to actually risk, to risk, uh, because you do believe that good things come from the hand of the Lord. Look there back at verse 1. This is um, the, one of the most popular passages in Ecclesiastes. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. That's an odd metaphor, thinking about throwing your bread on the water. One, it's, it's obviously a risky thing to do, Right? If you have food, this thing that sustains you, this thing that would provide you comfort and protection, the, the command to throw it out on the water is very risky. And it's actually a weird thing to say because if you actually went out and threw bread on the water, you wouldn't expect to get it back. Uh, you would expect it to get soggy and sink or the ducks to eat it or whatever for it to float away. But he says, look, cast your bread on the water. You will find it after many days. It's risky. It's, it's, it's calling you to actually step out and to do something and to realize that there is nothing in this world that you can do without risk. When it comes time to, I don't know, maybe some of you in here have, are, are thinking about a, a different career, a career change. And you're afraid of the risk. This actually says that there are times in your life where you, you risk. You step out. 
believing that a good thing waits for you. I couldn't help as I was thinking about this, but one, thinking about the Martins who have left a job that could provide all the kinds of security that humans can, can gain. He was a medical doctor. He would have been financially stable for sure. Could have sent his kids to the schools that he wanted to. And yet he, he steps out and goes to China and gives that up. He takes a risk. Or the Eisenbarths, who, who are nearing retirement. And, and we think of retirement as the days for the rocking chair and ease and comfort and sitting back and enjoying the fruit of our labors. And yet they're considering going to a closed place. Or they're going. Or you, at school, at home, in Waco, we're called to take risks, to believe uh, something and to live in the world in such a way that we realize we, don't control, we can't control it, but that we risk in the midst of that. Now, the language here of casting your bread upon the water, I think best uh, goes to commerce, to trade, to your vocation. We have an example of this in 1 Kings where we're told Israel at the time of this writing would have been uh, heavily in, involved in international commerce and trade. And in, in 1 Kings, we're told about a, 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 the king sending a ship out across the water, his bread and his goods across the water, and not gaining back anything for three years. Not, not getting a profit, not, not having a return on, on his risk for three years. And it's surely talking about just our interactions with the world that we might risk uh, and that we might take uh, certain chances. We would say this in a way, um, this way. We would say nothing ventured, nothing gained. If you need a job or you need to pick a major or decide what you're doing in the future and you don't know what to do, think about what the first step is. Start asking questions. Start gathering uh, job postings. Stop talk, start talking to somebody who's in the field that you're interested in. Nothing ventured, nothing gained. But the second part of this, verse 2, hones in on a little different aspect of giving. Give a portion to seven or even to eight. For you know not what disaster may happen on the earth. I think it's interesting that he says, you don't know what's going to happen on the earth. So you know what you should do? Not hoard, but give away. And the language here is the language of giving to the poor. The language is giving to the person in need. The language is of giving uh, uh, liberally to them. Look there, what it says, it says, look, give seven. No, give Eight. Seven would be a complete number. If you were to heard that, if you were to say, give seven, we might hear it like, give 10%. And he's saying, no, give, give, don't, give seven and then give more. Give liberally, give beyond. In the midst of an uncertain world, in the midst of you not knowing what disaster may happen to you on the earth. What the scripture says is, is out of phase from what the world says. It says you should actually become generous and loose-handed with your stuff, with the poor and the people around you. Give it away. Send it out. Hold loosely to it. 
I can't help but think at this moment of, of Peter when he comes to Jesus and says, you know, Peter's thinking pretty, uh, I think he's thinking well of himself. He thinks he's got one for Jesus. Hey, Jesus, what do you think about me that I'm willing to forgive somebody seven times? I mean, how much more could you forgive somebody than seven times? That's complete. And Jesus says, no, give 70 times seven. See, what the passage is calling us to do is in a world of uncertainty to do the opposite of what our instincts tell us to. Rather than to tighten grips, rather than to hold tightly, rather than to cling to things, it says give it away. Send it out. Give. Give to the poor. Because you don't know what tomorrow will bring. Give away liberally. Give freely. Give to those who are in need. I think about the story of the little red hen. You know, the, this is, we probably all grew up on this. The little red hen finds a grain of wheat, right? And she wants to plant the grain of wheat. And as she's doing that, she invites her friends along to join her in the work. And they don't join her in the work. And then when it comes time to uh, harvest and uh, mill the wheat and thresh it and, and make flour and then make bread, uh, she invites her friends along the way to uh, help her. And they don't. They all have something else to do. And so then when it comes time to enjoy the fruit of her labor, her friends smell the bread. They're hungry. And they come to their friend and say, will you let us eat with you? And the moral of the story is no. You didn't help. You go hungry. And that is not the message of the scriptures. The message of the scriptures are that we are to give away liberally, to, to be open-handed with people around us, that we are not to calculate their worth uh, of receiving from us because we don't deserve it either. Part of what's being said here is you don't control what you have. The Little Red Hen is a story to prop up an American work ethic. And by the way, if you're thinking of Paul in 2 Thessalonians where he says if you don't work, if a man doesn't work, don't let him eat. Just go read it in context. He's not talking about what we're talking about. He's talking about other ministers who are basically charlatans living on the gospel without actually working at it. He's not talking about the way we should posture ourselves toward the poor, the needy among us, or our friends, our children. I mean, how many of us, when we think about our children and, and, and these kinds of things, do we withhold good things from them because they haven't earned them? Or we give them a, a bar to, to jump over, and when they don't get over that bar, or they fail at that bar, we actually, what we do is we raise the bar. And we start creating a world where we actually try to control the outcome of their own growth and sanctification. And I'm not, again, in wisdom here, there's obviously times to discipline your child and encourage your child not to be lazy and all of that stuff. I understand that. But the posture of the scriptures and the posture of God, posture of God in the scriptures is that he will prepare and has prepared a table in front of you that you refused 
or could not, would not, were not able to have anything to do with. And, and what you actually bring to it is that you've worked against it and you've rebelled against it. And yet he throws a lavish feast and he says, come. Come feed, come participate. The beauty of this passage, I think it's beautiful, in the, especially in the context of Ecclesiastes, which seems like such a downer book. It looks like, like it's, all it's saying is that everything's meaningless. It seems like it's a cynical book, but actually in the middle of its honest assessment that we can't control the world, what it says is give away. And give away freely. And it even tells us why. Why we should give away. Look there at verse 5. As you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the works of God who makes everything. What what he's saying here essentially is that you can't control anything. We don't control anything. But there is one who does and it's God. And it's actually an understanding that God is in control of everything. That God is the one who gives all things. It's God who gives all good gifts. It's God who actually controls where the tree falls. It's God who can actually replant the tree that's fallen. He's in control. And if you believe that he's in control, then your ability to give away changes. It grows. Here's how one commentator says it. In other words, God is sovereign. He governs everything. He controls everything in the world. We may be ignorant of the plan of God, but we do know that he has the final say and everything is in his hands. Now, I get how that may be a little bit difficult, right? Because what, part of the reason we struggle and we desire to control is because we evaluate things in the world and we see the uncertainty and we see the wicked thing that's done, even to the righteous. And it's not that we wonder typically whether God is in control. We wonder whether he's good. It's not so much that we, we, we don't think he's in control. It's that we don't know that he'll be good to us. This drives, I don't know, maybe all of my fear. Certainly fear of the future, fear of stepping out, fear of risking, is that I'm not exactly sure that I can trust that even if the thing goes poorly for me out there, it's God's goodness that has taken me there. And that he actually wants to give me good things, which is what verse 6 says, right? The good thing will come. The logic of the Bible is that God, God's control allows you the freedom to risk, to try. I think this is really important for us to consider in our denomination. Because we are really big on everything decently and in good order. And there's nothing wrong with that. But it can be extremely oppressive. We can hide our stinginess in the language of stewardship. We can refuse to risk out of fear. Out of fear that we might fail, out of fear that somehow we might step out in faith and we realize, "Uh uh-oh, maybe this wasn't the best thing to do. Are you okay with that? 
Are you okay uh, planning your field and realizing next week that maybe it would have been better to wait this week and to trust that God is actually at work in all of that? Are you willing to step out and to do something? Maybe it's just have a conversation with somebody who's your friend who doesn't know about your faith in Jesus and, and just risk and to be okay at the end of that conversation thinking, man, I wish I'd have said this and hadn't said that. And to actually believe that God is in control and that he's good. Let me ask it this way. What about your relationship with God? Are there areas of your life that you're afraid to risk with God? Surely there's somebody in here who is suffering in silence. Who's dying on the inside. Who's crushed under the weight of something. And who's deeply afraid to tell anyone. Because the risk feels way too great and you're not sure that God could be good to you if you were exposed that way. One of my biggest fears in my relationship with God is that he will ask me to do something that will hurt too much. I don't want to suffer. I don't want the pain. Are we willing to step out freely? Are we willing to pursue with wisdom, with boldness, with wise boldness or bold wisdom, however you want to describe it? The way I was, when I was reading commentators, they were saying to risk, but I actually think that's wrong. We got we to get rid of the contrast. It's not risk, but wisely. It's just wise risk. It's boldly risking. It's wise boldness. They're not antithetical. And see, what the, what's going on in the scriptures and what we have to uh, uh, come to terms with is there are constantly things in our life that we have to step into and we're not going to know the outcome and we have to step out because we trust that God is in control. He's at work and he's good. The disciples, when they're in the boat, remember this? And the boat's about to be swamped. They don't say, Jesus... Can you, can you stop this? What they say is, Jesus, don't you care that we're perishing? I think that's a struggle for us all to believe that God in his control is good and that we can rest in it and we can risk in it. Look at what he says also in verse 5. He doesn't just say that God has made everything and works everything. He says, God is the one who gives the spirit to the bones in the womb of a woman. Now, we can certainly, much better than the ancient Near Eastern person, understand how a, a baby develops in the womb. We, we, have, we can understand that to a point, but we still don't understand it. We still can't explain it. I'm sorry, uh, you biology majors who want to come up and talk to me about uh, the development of a, of a child in the womb. There will be things that you can't explain. 
Even biologically and physiologically, there's things that we don't understand, right? But do you see what he's saying there? He's not simply talking about biology and physiology. He's talking about the humanity, the identity, the personhood, the soul of that child. And what he is saying is that God actually breathes the life of uh, the, the breathes life into that child, gives them their soul. There is no physiological or biological explanation for why uh, a child is born with a soul. We don't understand it. There is no one who can explain it. The picture is, is that God gives it. God is the one working in this moment for this child and giving them life and identity and giving them what it takes to be an image bearer. And a reflection of who he is and his goodness and his mercy. Down to the very smallest uh, in, in the mind of the author, in the mind of the reader, the remotest thing to, to, to our understanding is how a child is formed and comes out with dignity of humanity, of being an image bearer of God, an ensouled person. He's saying, you don't know that, but God does. God is at, at work there. And the picture is, is the, the same as uh, the one Jesus gives Nicodemus about the spirit who moves wherever it wills to bring uh, a salvation to a person, to bring them new life, new birth. And I love, I love that this, that's where it takes us because John 3 is one of the verses that uh, always gets quoted when, we, when this discussion about God's control of the world. But we see it in his, his discussion with Nicodemus. But it leads to what he says in John 3.16, which is God does this and his spirit operates because he loves the world. He loves it. He loves the world. He is at work for it. He is actually redeeming it. That you can step out and risk not simply because um, not not simply because God is in control of all things, but because God loves the world and He loves it so much so that He's redeeming it and He's making all things new. And He's promised that He will give you the deepest longings of your heart, the desires of your heart, the thing that you were made for. That He has given you a new heavens and a new earth, and you can risk everything because you know it's coming, because He loves you and He loves His world and He's at work. Another way to say this is that you and I can give liberally because God gives liberally. He gives freely. He gives, uh, he gives without holding something behind his back. He gives in such a way um, to redeem us because he loves us. He gives when we don't deserve because he loves us. He gives when we don't work because he loves us. He picks us up when we fail because he loves us. He has secured our way into the new heavens and the new earth because he loves us. And he gives freely. God, in, his, in Christ, gives us the rationale for how we give 
and give and give. It's not because we are called to just go home and do it. It's because we are called to see that this is the nature of God toward you. He gives freely. He doesn't withhold good things from his children. So my question for us is, can we do that? Will we do that? Will we believe that the gospel is powerful enough and a demonstration, powerful demonstration enough of the love of God for you that you will give away? You know, I love that uh, Tim Keller in his book where he deals with, um, I'll close with this. He deals with the, uh, the, the prodigal son, right? Um, and he actually points out in that book that both uh, sons are prodigal, but he's titled that book, The Prodigal God. You know what the word prodigal means? Somebody who's loose with their money. Somebody who's a spendthrift. And what Keller has picked up on that story is that the God who, who is like the father, who when the son rebelliously comes to him and says, give me my money, I want to go have fun. When he comes, the father gives it to him. And then, the, then what's implied in the story is that the father stands at his door and waits and watches every day for that son to come home. And then what he does... He doesn't say, get back to work. You've lost what? You've lost my inheritance? You're going to have to work now even harder to gain that back. I am so disappointed in you. I'm so uh, I'm mad at you. I can't believe you did that. What were you thinking? That is not the story. He throws a party. A big one. A big one. And Keller is picked up on the beauty of a God who spends freely for his reckless children. And that allows us to give freely. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are the prodigal God, that you have uh, over and above and abundantly uh, lavished your love uh, on us way more than what was required. And we get to hear that this morning through the preached word, and now we get to partake of it uh, through uh, the word communicated uh, visibly uh, at this table. And so, Lord, I ask that you would bless this time now uh, that we may uh, touch, taste, and smell uh, and what you've done for us, and that we may also be able to continue worshiping through our tithes and offerings. In your heavenly name we pray, amen.